Hey, if you have your Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 2 as we continue and we now come to our final week of the Christmas series. I was expecting you to just cry maybe, I don't know, expecting you to be a little sad, uh, but the truth is, uh, this is it, and it comes to this place, and I think that the way we've been traveling over the last four weeks to this point, that this is the apex of thought for Christmas. We've talked about the hope, we talked about the joy, we talked about the mercy, and now what is revealed before us in Luke chapter 2 is the peace that is with us. Because Jesus came that we now have peace among us. And I don't know if you've ever heard this song or not before, but has anybody ever heard, I've got peace like a river? Anybody? Okay. All right, we're going to sing it together. All right, and I, I just told uh, somebody a couple of days ago that I would never sing in front of the church. Okay, but here it is. All right, the Lord has just opened it up. All right, and so we're going to sing, I got peace like a river together, and you need to be ra- loud. You ready? I got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river in my soul. You did so good. All right. Amen. Have you ever wondered why it says, I have peace like a river? I mean, don't you think that real peace would be more like a lake, you know, with fish in it? You could go fishing. I don't know. Maybe it could be one of those little ponds, right? Peace like a pond. But instead they say, no, it's peace like a river. We get this idea not from the song, but actually from Scripture. The peace is like a river, according to Isaiah, according to the psalmist, that we see this over and over again, that peace does not just come into you and then store itself up like a reservoir within your heart, but rather it flows into you so that it may flow out from you. This is the idea of having peace like a river, that the source of peace is unending and the flow is everlasting. You may be thinking, I don't have that kind of peace. I mean, who possibly could? I mean, just trying to get to church this morning, there's nothing peaceful about it. I wouldn't know. I wasn't home, uh, but I'm sure my wife can say something about it. All right, but uh, you know that even at Christmas time, you have family coming in and family going out, and you have to be at this place. You have to go here. You have to make sure this is ready. You have to buy this pie. You have to have this dinner. You have to have this lunch, all these things. There's nothing peaceful about it. And you even think in the greater context of things. I mean, you think about peace around the world. Like, where's the peace? Where's the peace in Israel right now? Where is the peace in Ukraine? Where is the peace across America? I mean, even politically, economically, I mean, all of the things that we could talk about, where is the peace? And we think to ourselves, peace is just some mystic, unrealistic expectation of life that I could never actually have. But you know what Luke 2 teaches us? The exact opposite. 
You see, so many times we think that peace is the absence of noise. That has never happened in my house, all right? But peace is the absence of fighting. Peace is the absence of division. Peace is the absence of war. And this is the way that we often hear about peace and we have it described around us. But actually, Scripture is not teaching us that peace is the absence of one element or another, but rather it is the presence of Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, it transcends all the other things that we think would take away our peace except It became a reality that first Christmas. Let's read about it in Luke chapter 2. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you stand with me as we read our passage together? Luke chapter 2, 1 through 15. It says this, starting in verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God and the highest heaven, peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Let's pray, God, would you By your grace and by your spirit, Lord, would you speak to us now? And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated once again. You know, when you say shalom, if you've ever been to Israel before, I'm praying that we get to go back to Israel at some point soon. Um, But the idea here of shalom, this is what they say to one another so often is is shalom, shalom, shalom. And it's not just the phrase, although transliterated is peace with you, may peace go with you, but instead it is a deeper meaning than that. It is, I hope you have all the highest good coming to you. Shalom. It's much more than just an idea of, hey, I 
hope you have a good day. It is no, I hope the highest good and all that it has to offer is coming to you. It's much more passionate than good day, mate, right? I mean, it's just much more than that. And what we see in our passage in Luke chapter two is that the idea of peace is unfolding even before their own eyes. Mary was told what was going to happen. Joseph was told what was going to happen. But now, now the time is here. And the prophecy is fulfilled. Everything that we think about in prophecy, we sometimes get caught in one category or the other. We think that prophecy is all about the second advent. The prophecy is all about the second coming of Jesus. And so what does this have to do with this? And if uh, what happens if, if Israel uh, does this? What happens if Iran does this? Is this the mark of the beast? Is that the mark of the beast? And we kind of get caught off into these things. But the prophecy that I'm talking about is the one that has been fulfilled in the first advent and the way that we see it continuing to unfold in the world today. I mean, you think about this detail that Dr. Luke gives us in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. Now we look at this and think, okay, well, Dr. Luke is adding some historical depth so that we can identify the time and place that this happened? The answer is maybe. Um, but the problem is, is that it's not just about the historicity of the New Testament or it be even matching up with the Old Testament, although those things are true. But rather, what we see in this one statement is this opening so that we may understand one of the greatest gifts of who God is, and that is the sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign over all things, even Caesar Augustus, the highest God of the land, according to Rome. That this man, he is the one. I mean, Herod is the king of kings, right? He is the Lord of lords. No, actually, God himself, who is reigning supremely over you, is directing every step that you are making and taking, even at this moment. This is us to know God's sovereignty, even at a greater and deeper level, that there is not one thing that has happened or will happen that is distant or apart from the hand of God, allowing it or causing it to take place. Even this decree. Why? Because God was getting all of the characters, all of the pieces at the right time, in the right place, at the right moment for the greatest theatrical event of all time. You're talking about the greatest choir performance. You're talking about the greatest light show. All of these things are unfolding as Jesus is ushered into the world. And it's all According to Paul, who says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, in the fullness of time, what it says in the CSB is when the time came to completion, God 
sent his son. There's nothing that was just by chance about it. And that brings us to this place, this place to be born. Now, what is so special about this particular place to be born? When you think about Bethlehem, you may think about, well, this is the birthplace of David. So obviously, this makes sense that Jesus would be born in the same birth city as David. I mean, he's supposed to be of the line of David, and so now they're just sharing the same birth city. It makes sense. In fact, Bethlehem is not just some little bitty town just off the beaten map, and nobody knows about it. No, Bethlehem is a famous place. In fact, it became symbolic for David's own dynasty. I mean, his family lineage is from Bethlehem. This is an important city. But not only that, that this was the city that the uh, temple sacrifices for the grain offering, they would most likely go to Bethlehem in order to get their grain offering. This is why in the Hebrew, Bethlehem means house of bread, because it was the place where grain was growed. Is that a word? It was growed. It was, they grew it there. They growed it up real fast, all right? <laughs> real special place. But this is where they would get the grain offering for the temple sacrifice. So it's known as the house of bread. Isn't it interesting that this would be the place that the king of kings would be born? That this would be the place that the Lord of Lords would be born, the house of bread, because it would be later in John chapter 6 that Jesus would talk about bread once again, as he's not only as he multiplies it for the multitude, for the crowds, but then he makes this statement, hey, I know that you all know that I was born in the house of bread, but I have something I need to tell you. I actually am the bread of life. That if anybody would eat of this bread, if anybody would eat of me, you would never be hungry again. He says something similar to the woman of the, at the well in John chapter 4, just a couple of chapters earlier. He says, listen, if you just knew who is speaking to you, you would be asking me for water because the water I have is not just any kind of water, it's living water. It's water that if you would just drink of it, you would never thirst again. You see, there's symbolism tied throughout the city of Bethlehem, this house of bread. But it's not just the place and the fact that the bread of life would come from the house of bread, but also in the fact that the way that they even announced this would give us an indication of how Jesus's ministry would be manifested to the world. I mean, you think about a birth announcement. We never did any birth announcements because we never had money to do birth announcements, but it's fine, all right? Um, but if you think about giving a birth announcement, who do you send it to? You send it to your family, your friends, those who are closest to you. But if you are royalty, who do you send it to? Man, you send it to the highest of the high. If I was royalty, you know who I'd send it to? Mayor Don Warren. That's who I would send it to. <laughs> Amen, brother. All right? But you think about the way that Jesus' birth announcement went. Who did he send it to? He sent it, 
He sent it to the lowliest of the lowly. In fact, you know, if you read about shepherds, even from Josephus or out of the Mishnah, what you see is that they are the detestable. They are the ones that were looked down upon. They're the ones that only beat out the lepers. They weren't really the people that you would think a birth announcement should go to. And yet, this is how Jesus' ministry would even begin, by saying, I am for all people. Just as the angel said, this is good news of great joy for all people, not just the Sanhedrin, not just the Sadducees, not just the Pharisees, not just the religious elite, but rather this is for all people who will one day have faith in this baby of what he will do in about 33 years. But then what did Mary do? She wrapped him up, she swaddled him, and then placed him in a manger. Have you ever thought about this manger of what it really looks like? See, this is a a manger in ancient Israel that if we ever do get to go back, that maybe you can see uh, with me. In fact, they were all all over the place in Nazareth and and, um, just different parts. You can see these feeding troughs. And that's what it is. It's just a, a stone feeding trough. And what is interesting about a feeding trough is that what, what happens when you put food out in a feeding trough? Man, all the animals, they come right to it, right? Unless you're a stubborn mule or stubborn donkey or something, but just go with me on the, the symbolism here. Most likely, as soon as you pour that dog food out, your dog is run into that bowl. Well, the, the idea here is that the manger is a symbol of obedience. The feeding trough is a symbol of obedience. And so from the very beginning and the way that Jesus would even enter this world is that he would be bound and that he would be placed in a symbol of obedience, all out humility, even though that he is God, that he would allow some human woman bind him up and swaddle him and then be placed in this symbol of obedience. Why? Because Jesus knows full well from eternity past and in the councils of all eternity that the plan for salvation was for this baby to come, for Jesus to come. And it says in John chapter 6, verse 38, He says that, listen, for I have come down, for what? Not to do my will, but to do the will of the Father, of him who sent me. And so this is a sign from Jesus that from the beginning, I am surrendered to the Father. And then he was in these cloths. You see, what is interesting about this place If you were to first read about Bethlehem, the very first time that it's mentioned in in Scripture is in Genesis chapter um, 35. In Genesis chapter 35, you can see in verses 19 through 21, it says, so Rachel died. I want you to see if you can see this with me. Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a marker on her grave. It is the marker at Rachel's grave still today. Israel set out again, being Jacob, and pitched his tent, look at this, beyond the Tower of Adair. Now, what is so special about 
the Tower of Adair. See, if you were to look at this, this is uh, Hebrew. It is Migdal Adair. Okay, this is what that is. And we see Migdal Adair, which means Tower of the Flock. What this was is basically a, a stone-built tower. All right, and I think we have a picture for you that you can see one. This is uh, photographed in the early 1900s, okay? But this is what it looked like before. And you can see this little feather up there like a peacock just up there just watching over, over the fields. And this is what they would do so that they could see all of the field. But here's what is interesting about Migdal Adair is that this would be the place that all of Israel would believe that the king is coming because it is the uh, uh, birthplace of David. This is the burial place of Rachel. And it tells us in Micah chapter four, verse eight, it says, and you, listen to it, watchtower for the flock. You Migdal Adair, fortified hill of daughter Zion, the former, former rule will come to you. Sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. What it's saying here is that out of Migdal Adair is this king of kings, the Messiah, the one who has promised to come. Now, what is interesting is that not only is Bethlehem and this area, not only are they the primary source for the grain offering, but they are also the flock that for daily and annual um, of Passover sacrifices, this is where they were born and raised. So when the scene shifts in verse 8 and goes to the shepherds, it's more than just talking about the lowly, but instead what Jesus is doing, what God is doing in this grand plan is that he's going to the shepherds, the ones who are used to finding out, is this a good lamb for the temple or not? Is this a good one that we can use or not? And these shepherds, they show up on the scene and they see the swaddled baby just as they would swaddle the spotless lamb so it wouldn't break a limb. It wouldn't do anything to make it now blemished. They would protect it. And in the same way, they come and they see this baby. It's tied up. And it's lying in this symbol of obedience. And maybe it wasn't all coming together, but certainly looking back on this, we can understand that finally the real spotless lamb, the one who has come to take the sins of the world is finally here. And this is why they say about this peace, because the peace that we have longed for can finally be received. And the announcement says in verse 14, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. You may be thinking to yourself, how, how can I be one of the favored ones? Like, how can I have this type of peace? You know, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made no effective law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in 
in peace. The greatest peace that you need is not just peace on earth as, and, and as just some uh, beauty pageant contestant would say. What you need is peace between you and God because the lacking peace that you have in your life, you don't have peace in your marriage, you don't have peace with your kids, you don't have peace in your business, you don't have peace in life. It is all a result of the peace that you have with God himself and this baby, Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem in a manger in this town with the shepherds and all that we are reading has come so that you can be reconciled to God for all. He is the one who provides peace for you and you can be favored. You can be the one if you just simply trust in him. See what a great gift this is? Because here's what is interesting about this baby who was swaddled here in a manger. Is that about 33 years later, he's going to be bound again by Roman guards. He's going to be bound as he stands before Annas. He's going to be bound as he stands before Pontius Pilate. He's going to be bound as he is flogged. And he is going to be bound not by cloths, but by a cross, a wooden cross that belonged to you. And he would be bound by this cross until he is taken down. And then he would be bound by a tomb with this large stone that's going to roll over it. And they think that he is bound once and for all. But instead, praise be to God that you can not bound God himself. You cannot bind him. You cannot keep him. He is the resurrection and the life. He is born of this house of bread, but he is the bread of life that you can have in this because he said, it is finished. This Jesus, this baby that the shepherds saw, Maybe they didn't understand, but they had something different. They had the ability to receive this peace once and for all, and so do you. You have that ability. This peace like a river, it comes in the way that Jesus described it with his disciples. You see, in the final moments before he was bound again and given off to the Romans, in these final moments, he takes his disciples and he puts them all together in the upper room. And he says, he says, listen, this is my body that was once bound, that will be bound again, but is broken for you. Then he says, this is my blood that is spilled out for you, that is poured out for you, not because someone forced it but because I freely, willfully gave it up for you. He says, if you trust in this, you too can have eternal life. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to have our deacons come and prepare the elements. But I just want to encourage you, maybe that's you this morning, that you don't have that peace you can trust in Jesus today. And the greatest gift of all is you receiving Jesus Christ. But maybe you have something that you need to deal with in your own heart, in your own life. Paul gives us this warning before we come to the table that we would be clean before him. Whatever that is during this time of worship and the passing out of the elements,
Use it to just pray. Ask the Lord for forgiveness. Come clean before him. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We ask you now, God, that you would cleanse us of our sins. God, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, that you would forgive us, Father, for where we miss the mark with you. And Father, I ask you right now, God, that you would show me any sin in my life, Father, that I could confess before you, that I could be clean before you. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters right here in this room. God, that may be hurting, that they may be going through a difficult time. God, would you just use this to remind them of your peace that you offer freely through your son, Jesus? And Father, I ask that right now, God, that you would just allow us to simply worship you in spirit and in truth as we are reminded of the cross through the Lord's Supper. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.